Well, welcome back, podcasters from an autumnal London. And as the weather takes a bleak turn, what better way to spend a mellow and fruitful evening than listening to the latest news on duties in the financial services? So grab a cup of tea or maybe even a hot chocolate if you're feeling decadent and settle down to listen to my co-host, Kerry. Hello, Kerry. Hi, John. And our guest speaker, Harriet Tolkien. Hello, Harriet. Hello, John. Uh, kick off, uh, I think, Kerry, you're going to begin with a recent uh, Supreme Court decision. Yes, indeed, John. So first up today is the case of Pakistan International Airline and Times Travel, which is an important uh, one because it represents the latest word from the Supreme Court on the requirements for establishing liability for the tort of lawful act economic duress. Hold your horses, Kate. Let me stop you there. Before getting into the detail of the decision, could you tell our podcasters why this particular contraction is likely to be of interest to in-house lawyers at banks? Yeah, of course. Um, so we've seen the tort of lawful act economic duress pop up in a variety of claims against banks. Um, interestingly, it's been argued a number of times in borrower claims against lenders in circumstances where the lender has sought to enforce its right against a defaulting borrower and there has been a subsequent restructuring or refinancing. So in this type of scenario, we've seen the borrower argue that it only agreed to the restructuring because of illegitimate pressure from the lender relying on the tort of lawful act economic duress to try and set aside the contract. So hopefully that gives you a bit of context as to how this decision might be of relevance in banking disputes. It is indeed. Thank you, Kerry. So circling back to the Supreme Court decision, in this case, Pakistan International Airline, uh, the question here was whether a contract should be rescinded in circumstances where the defendant threatens to end its contractual relationship with the claimant, unless the claimant waived all claims it might have for commission due under a previous contract. So in essence, the claimant was trying to wriggle out of the renegotiated contract. The Supreme Court held that the renegotiated contract should not be rescinded, giving some helpful clarification of the requirements for the tort of lawful act economic duress along the way. The Supreme Court was unanimous in its decision on the basic elements for establishing liability for the tort. And these are threefold. So firstly, the defendant's threat or pressure must have been illegitimate. Secondly, it must have caused the claimant to enter into the contract. And thirdly, the claimant must have had no reasonable alternative to um, giving in to that threat or pressure. I mean, that's undoubtedly a helpful restatement of the test, Kerry, but I'm not convinced there's anything particularly new there. I think the really knotty question is going to be what constitutes an illegitimate threat. And I know this is, issue um, vexed the Supreme Court in this particular decision. Yes, indeed, John. So while all the justices agreed on the requirements I just set out, there was considerable disagreement between Lord Burroughs and Lord Hodge, with whom the other justices agreed, on what exactly amounted to an illegitimate threat. For Lord Burroughs, who agreed with the Court of Appeals analysis, the key point was whether the defendant had acted in good or bad faith, so whether it genuinely believed it was not liable for the claim, um, it had asked the claimant to waive. Lord Hodge um, for the, and the majority disagreed that this bad faith requirement would be sufficient to establish that a threat by the defendant was illegitimate 
Rather, they thought the key question was whether the conduct was reprehensible so as to make the enforcement of the contract unconscionable. Kerry, that sounds like a higher hurdle and one which will be more tricky for claimants to satisfy. Yeah, I agree, Harriet. So, in fact, the court stressed that it would not be quick to find that a commercial party made an illegitimate threat in negotiating a commercial contract, particularly considering that there's no doctrine in English law relating to inequality of bargaining power or general principle of good faith in contracting. So I think the decision should be useful where a bank is facing a more speculative sort of claim, for example, by a claimant saying that it was pressured into a renegotiation, which has turned out to be a bad business decision, and the claimant is casting around for ways to get out of the bad deal. Something we've all um, seen before. Well, Luke Kerry, thank you very much. Uh, We, of course, have a blog post on this very important decision, which podcasters you can find in the show notes if you would like a little bit more. Okay, uh, moving on. While the seasons are undoubtedly changing, and I can testify to this, uh, overnight we've had a flooded kitchen and a tree down, uh, but some things remain reassuringly constant. I am, of course, here referring to the continued growth of collective proceedings uh, in the UK. So next up, I'm going to discuss a few recent developments in the field of class actions. The first case uh, I've selected to discuss with you today is Jala and Shell, a Court of Appeal decision looking at the parameters of the representative action procedure under CPR 19.6. Could you give us a quick reminder of how that particular procedural mechanism works, please? Absolutely, Harriet. 19.6 allows a claim to be brought by or against one or more persons as representatives of any others who have the same interest in the claim. And the important thing to remember about this type of representative action is that it's effectively an opt-out regime. Instead of requiring claimants to use the group litigation order or GLO procedure, unlike a GLO, which requires individual claimants to take steps to opt into the group action, there's no need under CPR 19.6 for the representative class to be joined as parties to the action or even to be identified on an individual basis. So presumably that means that it's much easier to get a financially viable claim off the ground. Precisely. And for that reason, opt-out claims are highly favoured by claimant firms and funders alike, given that the value of the claim is maximised and the need to book build a class of claimants is avoided. And so the decision in Jala and Shell will be bad news from their perspective because the representative element of the claims was struck out for failing to satisfy the same interest requirement under CPR 19.6. One aspect of the judgment that's worth highlighting is the way in which the Court of Appeal rejected the claimant's argument that the case was materially indistinguishable from Lloyd and Google. The claimants have placed great weight in the Court of Appeal's decision in Lloyd and Google, where it was found that the action related to data breaches and found that that could proceed under CPR 19.6 on behalf of 4 million or so iPhone users. Lloyd and Google is itself uh, currently awaiting the judgment of a Supreme Court uh, appeal, although the present appeal proceeded on the assumption that the Court of Appeal's uh, decision was correct. But the Court of Appeal said that Jala and Shell was in fact quite different. Here there were issues of limitation, causation and damages, which had to be determined on a claimant by claimant basis. And the court said that these were core matters which could not be considered to be subsidiary to the proceedings. 
So the court refused to allow the case to proceed as a representative action, as it would not have achieved any of the intended benefits of CPR 19.6. So this sounds like a welcome development for financial institutions, uh, which will generally be in the position of defending claims of this type. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Kerry. Decision, decisions like this, emphasising the strict same interest requirement for the CPR 19.6 procedure, are really important and help to ensure that the regime does not inadvertently open the door to a flood of mass damages claims. Anyway, this was intended to be a quick recap. And for more detail on this one, you can, as ever, find a link in the show notes. Thanks, John. And I think you mentioned that you have a second case for us in this class actions quarter. Yes, I do indeed, Kerry. My next case is recent Privy Council decision in Prameo Fund against Bank of Bermuda, which will be the subject of our deep dive this week. And the decision concerns the reflective loss principle, which has a tendency to crop up in group shareholder claims. And so I thought it would be suitable for this segment. And this is a principle we've covered quite a lot of in, in recent podcasts. It might even give your favourite Quincecare a run for its money, Kerry. Oh, John, the jury's still out on that one. Well, we've been very loyal to Quincecare on this channel, but maybe Primeo uh, can sway us towards the uh, reflective loss principle. Let's see. John, could we have a quick rundown of the principle before we dig into the main judgment? Yep. Yes, of course. Sorry, sorry to get ahead of myself. Uh, in a nutshell, the reflective loss principle means that a shareholder cannot bring a claim based on a fall in the value of their shares, where that fall is the result of loss suffered by the company, or where the company also has a cause of action against the same wrongdoer. The uptake in coverage of cases considering the reflective loss principle has been driven by last year's Supreme Court decision in Sevilla and Marex, which provided some much-needed clarity on the precise scope and application of the principle. And since then, many of the cases that were stayed pending the outcome of Marex have, have been decided. I won't repeat uh, the detail of Marex here, as it's not needed uh, for us to uh, consider the recent decision in Primeo. I'll just note that the Marex decision confirmed that the reflective loss principle is a bright line rule but it sorts rein in attempts to apply the principle more widely by making it clear that the rule should not be applied outside of shareholder claims. And specifically, it does not extend to prevent claims brought by creditors. If you're interested in a more uh, in-depth analysis of Marex, please do listen to our podcast uh, covering the judgment, which I think was uh, episode 20. So John, what novel angle did the Privy Council have to consider in the recent case? Ah, yes, well, it's an interesting point, Kerry. Uh, the case focuses uh, on the time at which the reflective loss rule falls to be assessed. And this is very important because it will affect who is barred from bringing a claim. So, for example, if someone is a shareholder at the time uh, the relevant cause of action arises, but they've sold their shares by the time the claim is issued, is the claim that of, an, uh, of the ex-shareholder barred by the reflective loss principle? The key takeaway from the case is the board's confirmation that the reflective loss rule falls to be assessed as at the point in time when the claimant suffers the loss. And the board emphasised that the reflective loss principle is not a procedural rule concerned with the avoidance of double recovery only, but it has to be applied as a substantive rule of law, focusing on the nature of the loss as assessed at the time that the loss is suffered. That's really interesting. So has this point been given much thought in other cases then? Yes, it certainly has. Um, there have been a few conflicting decisions on timing since uh, Marnix, and the Primeo Fund decision helpfully resolves the anomaly 
by expressly confirming that a shareholder who has suffered loss in the form of a diminution in value of its shareholding, which is not recoverable as a result of the reflective loss principle, can't simply avoid the exclusion by converting the loss into one which is recoverable simply by selling their shares. Okay, that makes sense. Um, John, you've mentioned that this is a Privy Council decision. Could you confirm its precedent value? Uh, yep, let's go back to basics. So while the Privy Council uh, does not bind the English court, they do, uh, their decisions do have great weight and persuasive authority uh, unless they're inconsistent uh, with a decision that would otherwise be binding on the lower courts. So we expect the approach uh, to the timing question in this case to be followed when the reflective loss principle next appears before the English courts. Well, until then, for those who would like to read the blog post, there is a link as ever in the show notes. There is indeed, Kerry. Thank you. And in keeping with the autumnal theme of this podcast and with Halloween fast approaching, I will move us seamlessly onto the next podcast to look at whether there are any legal skeletons in the disclosure closet. And that segue has certainly frightened me. Um, so over to you uh, for this one, Harriet. That was a truly ghastly introduction, John. Thank you. But I can confirm that I have two short disclosure updates for you. The first is the recent decision in State of Qatar and Bank Havilland, which considered a key issue for in-house lawyers at banks, namely the disclosure of documents that have been created as part of an, inter- of an earlier internal investigation. In short, the High Court granted the claimant state's application seeking the disclosure of an investigation report, which had been created by an accounting firm instructed by the defendant bank. These documents had originally been withheld from disclosure on the grounds of litigation privilege. Now, the court said that at the time the relevant report was commissioned in this case, there was little evidence that adversarial proceedings were reasonably in the bank's contemplation. The court was equally unconvinced that the sole or dominant purpose in commissioning the reports was conducting, settling or avoiding litigation. Now, I think the decision on dominant purpose is particularly harsh because the court commented that even if the bank had reasonably contemplated adversarial litigation, the report was not produced for the dominant purpose of litigation. Did the court say what it thought the dominant purpose of the report was for? Yes, John, it did, for fact-finding and to be able to answer the regulator's questions. I think I agree then, the decision does sound pretty harsh in that aspect. If proceedings had been in contemplation, and I'm not sure how finding out the facts could be seen as a competing purpose to the litigation, surely that would be part and parcel of the anticipated litigation? Yes, absolutely. In that scenario, I doubt the bank would have been investigating the facts as a matter of academic interest. But it certainly helps to highlight the difficulties faced by financial institutions who seek to withhold or redact an investigation report on the basis of litigation privilege. If you would like to read about this decision in more detail, there is, as always, a link to our blog post in the show notes. I guess you could say that one is more of a trip than a treat. <laughs> anyway, so now now seems like a great time to tell our listeners about HSS new tool for those navigating the complexities of legal privilege, Harriet. It does. Following on from the fantastic feedback the firm has received in past years from clients about our handy client guide to privilege, HSF has, drumroll please, Uh, released a new English law legal privilege app. Accessible from mobile and desktop, it involves answering a short series of questions which are then analysed to determine whether documents are likely to be privileged or not. 
You can find out more about our new app and how you can use it via the link in the show notes. That was a spookingly uh, professional voiceover, uh, Harriet. You'll be after my job next when I move to Radio 4. Uh, I think you mentioned there was a second disclosure update for us. Yes, just a very quick one. I'm sure all of our listeners will be well aware of the ongoing disclosure pilot scheme, which was introduced in the Business and Property Courts at the start of 2019 under Practice Direction 51U. So this is just to alert you to the fact that the pilot has now been extended to the end of 2022. Thank you uh, very much, Harriet. Great news, I'm sure. Uh, look, uh, to round this episode off, I'm going to hand over to our resident LIBOR expert, Kerry, to give you an update on the UK's safe harbour legislation. Kerry, over to you. Thanks, John. Um, so for those who have been following the journey of LIBOR transition, you'll know that there have been some pretty major developments in the past month or so, which are likely to impact the associated litigation risks significantly. In particular, the introduction of the snappily titled Critical Benchmarks, References and Administrators Liability Bill to Parliament, which is part of the UK's legislative toolkit designed to support the winding down of LIBOR, which will cease in most currencies aside from US dollar LIBOR at the end of this year. The bill was introduced following a consultation with HMT earlier this year on the need for a safe harbour in order to minimise the risks of claims arising from LIBOR transition and the introduction of the UK's legislative fix. There's been strong market support for this sort of safe harbour because the legislative solution is a somewhat blunt tool in that it will automatically change the interest uh, rate payable under relevant contracts overnight at the end of this year. Simply put, uh, LIBOR switches to something called synthetic LIBOR or called synthetic libel by the market. So I won't attempt to get into the detail of the bill on this platform and suggest that anyone who's interested should check out our blog post. There is, of course, a link in the show notes. Um, but the key point to highlight is that although the bill is pretty robust in how it addresses the question of any legal uncertainty arising from the legislative fix, uh, which should help to deal with any force majeure frustration type claims, it does not offer broad express protection from mis-selling type claims. And this is unfortunate, uh, given the inevitable value transfer for contracts caught by the legislation, and it is in stark contrast to the US legislative solution. That is uh, very interesting indeed, Kerry, and podcasters, um, a key bit um, of change <clears throat> for you to be aware of. So uh, thank you very much indeed, Kerry, for that very comprehensive rundown. Well, uh, podcasters, uh, with key decisions blowing around uh, like um, uh, things that blow around in the autumn, let's hope that some stick to you like wet leaves. If you have any questions or indeed uh, fancy uh, a briefing on uh, the LIBOR um, area that Kerry has just uh, referred to, please do get in touch. Um, otherwise, um, it just remains for me to thank our uh, speaker today, uh, Harriet, our guest speaker. Thank you very much, Kerry, my co-host and Laura behind the glass for making this all happen. Podcasters, we'll see you in the winter. Thank you very much for joining us.